Good morning, Generations Church. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 22. As you just heard in the scripture passage that we were, had read to us, we are in this moment where David is on the run from Saul. And everywhere that David goes, it seems that the people treat him well. Now, his character is known by the people. He's beginning to be a known quantity in Israel, if you will. Saul also is known by Israel. His antics, negative, are known by the people, and David's character is starting to shine through. Now, here's a main idea for us today. Can the church be the answer? So David, on the run from corrupt King Saul, cares for the people. Can the church be what our community needs when the government fails us? What I mean by that is, what is the role of the church right now in a very divided nation, in a very politicized nation, in a nation where most people don't trust the government or think that the government has our best intentions in mind? Where does the church fit in that? And what we'll see today is Saul, kind of an image of our modern setting, government leadership. David, where we can be as a church. And so let me say a quick prayer. I know we've been prayed for already, but let's pray and get to it. God, we pray that you would speak, uh, that you would remove me, that I would get out of the way, and that your church would hear your words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel 22, starting in verse 1, says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave at Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David begins to lead even before he is king. Uh, that's a common, let's call that a, a good way to see leaders developed in the church, right? When people just lead, they take on positions of leadership, not necessarily titles or jobs, but they just draw people to them and they lead them towards Jesus. That's where David is now. He's living his life. He's not king. He will be king. But he is living in such a way where he's caring for people and people are drawn to him. He's naturally a leader or even better, he has supernaturally been made a leader by God. Verse 3, and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. I want to give a bit of contrast. Saul, last week, as we heard from Pastor Paul, Saul even takes and throws a spear, not only at David, who he's jealous of and mad at, but at one point to his own son. And in that moment where, uh, where, where Saul hurls that spear, he also curses his son and his son's mom, Saul's wife. And so there's this blaming of his own family and taking things out, his own jealousy, his own sin, he's taking it out on his family. On the other side of that, we have this contrast. David is caring for his parents. He's caring for people in the community. He's caring for others, and he's the one in trouble, on the run, if you will. Verse 5, then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest at Hareth. So David moves from where he is, finding out that, uh, that 
that Saul is after him, that he's coming his way. So David goes out into the wilderness, the forest of Hereth. Now, who cares for David? That's my question for us. Now, who makes sure that David is okay? Does David stay and say, you know what? I have the right to be here. I didn't do anything wrong. Saul's making this up. Saul's jealousy is getting the best of him. Does he stand and fight or does he leave and go into the wilderness? Well, we know he goes into the wilderness, right? Trusting that God has a plan. Trusting that being obedient to God is the right thing to do. And again, take David in this moment where he didn't do anything wrong. The things that Saul's jealous about, David did nothing wrong. Rather than David find himself entitled in this moment to be right, because he is right, he really takes God's leadership or, or God's message to go away. He doesn't want to fight King Saul. He doesn't want to fight the government, the leadership, the authority over him. In fact, even when Saul tries to kill him, his job, he just walks away. He really just leaves the situation. Verse 6, now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under a tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul says to the people with him, listen, who's, what's David going to do for you? I'm the one that can benefit you. Now, why is it that none of you are taking my side? Listen to what he says. He says, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. Saul is so mad, he won't even say David's name. We'll see that in a minute again. Like he, my servant or the son of Jesse, that's what he keeps saying. And he doesn't really even want to say David's name. You can just see the jealousy eating him up. Now he's beginning to take it out on the people around him. Verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, and Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. This is the part of the liturgy reading, we just heard that scripture reading just before this, and told the story of how David goes and sees the priest, and inquires of God, and then asks for the sword. Well, Doeg saw him there, and now Doeg is telling Saul, well, this is the last place I saw him. Verse 11, then the king, meaning Saul, sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he's risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? So he accuses the priests of conspiracy. Now, if you remember the passage we just heard read to us, the priest doesn't know that David's on the run from Saul. Uh, in fact, David doesn't tell him. And so he does nothing wrong, but Saul's jealousy is now spilling out to everyone. He's accusing his son of conspiracy. He blames his son and his, and his wife. He accuses the people around him of conspiring against him by not telling him. Now he calls in the priest, and what happens really is 
all the priests of this area called Nob, they all come. We're going to find out there's like 85 of them. They come, and he's accusing the entire priesthood of being against him. Verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let the king, let not, excuse me, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. The priest says, listen, I've inquired for David before, and last I heard, David's in charge of your bodyguards, honored in your house, and married to your daughter. Why would I not care for him? He's your son-in-law. He's a man you've honored. Verse 16, and the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So let's push pause for a minute. Saul is ready to kill all the priests in this entire city. How far down the road of sin do you have to be to be so clouded in your sin, in your judgment, in your, in your circumstances, where literally you will take it out on those who serve God? Like, that's where Saul is. He's like, let's just kill all the priests of this city. He is trapped now in this place. Everyone is conspiring against me. Saul, so far down the road, in his own sin, everyone should be killed. Verse 18, then the, key, the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. Eighty-five priests are killed by Doeg the Edomite. Saul looks to his servants, and he says, I want you to kill all the priests. And they're like, yeah, no, no, we're not going to do that, right? Like, that's a whole bunch of priests, and we feel like God's saying no in this moment. And then Doeg the Edomite does it anyhow when we find out there's 85 priests dressed in their priestly garments, wearing the ephod. Now, I'm not as fancy as Pastor Paul and his movie references last week. I didn't get them all. I'm a pretty simple, middle-aged guy. So here's a good tombstone reference for you. There's this opening scene where the cowboys, the bad guys, Curly Bill Brosies and they go in and they're at this, the wedding of a Mexican cop and they are chasing down this, this Mexican policeman and they kill him and they kill the bridal party and then they begin to walk away and the priest is yelling at them and then all of a sudden Johnny Ringo turns around and shoots the cop and even the bad guys there are like, wow, you just crossed a line. He shoots the priest in his, in his robe, his priest, he was just doing the wedding and even the bad guys there are kind of consumed with like, Johnny Ringo just stepped over a huge line here. That's Doeg the Edomite times 85. All the servants of Saul know like we're moving into territory that's really bad. But Doeg the Edomite is willing to cross that line with Saul. Verse 19, and Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. There's an interesting story here. When Saul was told to go into Amalek and destroy all of them because they're wicked, 
Saul went in and destroyed most, but he kept what was good. Now Saul, in his rage and in his sin, goes into a city of priests where they train up the priesthood, and he murders every one of them. He puts them all to death, even their animals. That's how far Saul has slid into his own depravity. Here's a note for you. Unchecked sin. When we leave unchecked sin in our lives, it spirals out of control and often takes us further away from God than we would imagine. I have a good friend, used to be a leader in the church with me. We have done ministry together, gifted leader. And there was this slow kind of move and shift away from God. And it it began with unchecked sin. It began with doing something he knew was wrong, but didn't stop. And, and it grew, and then it festered, and it created other problems. And the next thing, there began doubt and sin and distance. That leader today is no longer in the church. Not in, not, I don't mean just generations church. I mean no longer a part of God's church. He's renounced his faith and walk away from the church. And I bring that up, you say, because it all started with this little unchecked part of his life that grew and festered and sparked into this complete shift away from God. It should be a warning to us that our sin creeps in and separates us, creates a wedge between us and God, and unchecked sin results in things like my friend and Saul. Saul allows this unchecked sin of jealousy to begin to fester into full tilt war against even his own people, and God. We need to do serious looks at our own heart and our own sin and give those things to God and repent of those things. We can't leave them unchecked. Verse 20, but one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and he fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. David takes the blame for Saul's actions. He says, when I came in and I saw the priest and I saw Doeg the Edomite, when I saw him there, I knew he would tell Saul and I should have done something. I should have done something. I should have said something. Listen, here's what happened. Saul hears that David was there and Saul does a wrong. David doesn't. But David owns it. David says, man, I, I wish I wish when I saw him, I knew he would tell Saul. I knew something would come of this. You see, good leaders own the problem. Bad leaders blame everyone else. Saul blames everyone else. David, though he's not even wrong, not, didn't do anything wrong, owns it like, man, maybe I could have prevented this. Let that be a lens by which we look at our leadership today. How many times have this president said the last president or the last president said the one before him or the one before him said the one before him was all the problem that we have? That is a political norm today. Well, the last leader, they just done this different. We'd be in a different place. I'll fix it. But then they won't fix it. The next guy will blame them, right? The next person will blame them. Well, good leadership is, listen, man, here's where we're at. Like, I, I, I'm to blame. I'll own it. I'll be responsible for the people. That's what David does. When Saul blames everyone else, the people around him, his family, his son, David, David takes ownership. 
1 Samuel 23, verse 1, it says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Remember our message two weeks ago? We talked about perpetual long-term struggles, right? And we said that since we opened this book, what, 23 chapters now ago, that the Philistines have been this ongoing perpetual struggle for the people of God. And they'll win a battle here, or they'll lose a battle there, and, but it's this ongoing thing. And we tied that to things in our own lives. We talked about uh, just health struggles, things like that, COVID, things like that, just long, ongoing problems. Well, here it is again. David is now encountering a problem that was kind of, in, he's inheriting, right? He didn't create the problem. This existed long even before Saul. But now he will encounter this problem. And a question for us as we move into future chapters, if we remember, hey, I identified with that long-term struggle message, then as we look at future chapters, as David engages this, how does he deal with a problem he inherited? How does he deal with a struggle that doesn't seem to be going away? What does he do about it? Verse 2, it says, therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Caleb. You see the contrast again being pointed out between Saul and David. Saul would rush ahead of God or take things into his own hands or wouldn't inquire of God at all. But now David, he says, God, what do I do? And he waits for the answer and God says this, go in and attack the Philistines. And what's going on is the Philistines are attacking this Israelite village of Caleb. And God says, listen, I'll protect you. I got you. Go ahead. I'll give you the victory. Verse 3, but David's men said to him, behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought against the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. Listen, David saved the inhabitants of Calah. Now, whose job is it to protect these people? Well, it's the king's, right? I mean, Saul should be protecting his people. But Saul's so wrapped up in his own thing, Saul's not doing his job. So God is using David. David's not king yet. Yes, God has told him he will be king. But David is not king yet. It's not his job yet. But God uses David. David finds this space where he's like, I know it's not my official job, but they came to me. They asked me. And so I asked God and God said, do it. So I'm in. Like, tag me in. I'm the guy, right? Just like with Goliath, when there was a a, a soldier or an army there that could have fought against him, David said, if God will do this, I'm in, right? Sometimes the leadership we have isn't the solution. Maybe they're not there. Maybe they're so wrapped up in their own thing that they're not doing what they should be doing, caring for people, right? David finds himself in this, and though it isn't his official job, he goes and does it. So here's a note for you. When leadership fails, the role of the church is to be the Christ to the world, especially when leadership around us is so corrupt, right? We should be the Christ, the Jesus to the world. We should be that incarnation of Christ to our community, especially when leadership falls short. We should be the ones that care for people. We should be the ones that reach out to people. We should be the ones that love people and help them heal. We should be there, especially when government falls down on the job. But even if there was no government, we should be it. 
Jesus has entrusted us with so much that you circle back all the way to the promises to Abraham. I will bless you and you'll be a blessing to the nations. Like the job has always been, I'll bless you, you bless others. That should be us. The church today struggles because we're so caught up in what the government should do that we're not doing it either. David doesn't ask that question. He never pauses and tells Caleb this, the, this, this city of people. He never says, well, shouldn't Saul be like protecting you? He just asks God, like, hey, God, are you in this? Shall I do this? And when God says yes, David goes and gets in it. Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Caleb, and they had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Caleb, and Saul said, God had given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Caleb and besiege David and his men. So the word of this little thing with the Philistines and David winning, this leaks. It gets out to Saul. And Saul's like, great, this is a city where I can trap him in. I got a choke point. I can go get David. And so he rallies an army to go get him. Verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Again, David looks to the priest, hey, bring the ephod, let's pray, let's seek God. And he asked the priest, ask God what to do here. Verse 10, then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Cala to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servants has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Now again, pause here. Fast forward, put us in this circumstance, right? Imagine the church is now trapped in this little city. And, and the church had been the one who just defeated the enemies. And the church had been the one who's been caring for the people. Just imagine it's you and I. And we're in that setting. How might that setting play out, Right? Now, if the leadership we have is corrupt and sinfully seeking for themselves, selfish gain, if you will, what would the church do in this situation? Would they fight back and just say, you know what, man, it is my American God-given birthright to stay here. I'm not going to go. I'm going to defend myself. I have rights. I have this. I have that. Would we do that? That sounds like the, the world we live in. It sounds like the church we live in today. Well, I've got these, I am this, or I didn't do anything wrong, or I don't need to do this, or the other person's wrong, or the, the government's bad, whatever that is. A lot of eyes, a lot of rights, a lot of blame. What does David do? What does David do? The one that God is using to teach us what we're to do. Verse 12, then David said, will the men of Caleb surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men were about 600, arose and departed from Cala, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Cala, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness and the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. What does David do when Saul pursues him? Does he stand there and say, I didn't do anything wrong. I just delivered these people. Saul's guilty. I got 600 men. I'm willing to fight. No. He asked God what to do, and God says, leave. So David walks away from the people he's just rescued. The people he just spent, he and his men, his army, just defended. He leaves, and he goes out, and he walks away from the fight. Why? Because that's what God said to do. Go out into the wilderness. 
what God does is God protects David his way. Not David's way, not our way, not the constitutional way, not the Republican way, not the Democrat way, God's way. God protects David God's way. And David is obedient enough to know I need to understand the difference. There's right and there's wrong, but then there's what God tells me I should do. And God has said, walk away and let me protect you. Getting out of God's way. Here's a note for you. The church today is so consumed with fighting our own battles that we block what God desires to do. Our battle, our struggle is getting ourselves out of God's way. Our biggest problem today is we're in God's way. God wants to move. God wants to defend. God wants to do for us. But we're so busy fighting our battles, we're the ones in the way. David is smart enough, sharp enough, acute enough, in contact with God enough, has faith enough to ask the question first, God, where would you have me go? Would you have me stay and fight because I'm willing to fight? I'm a fighter. Or would you have me walk away? God, what would you have me do? God says, walk away, and he does. On other days, God says, go fight the giant. And he takes a sling and a stone and defeats a giant. God says, go fight the Philistines. He'll go fight the Philistines. This is nothing about David's fear or lack of character, lack of fight. David's a fighter. David's a victorious fighter. But David knows I only fight the fights God calls me to. I let God fight my battles. That's why I'm a victorious fighter. That's what David knows that you and I, we need to learn. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. David stays on the run in the wilderness. David win in the fight? Maybe. Should David be able to stay and fight? Yeah. Did David do anything wrong? No. Did Saul do everything wrong and is still getting his way? Yes. Sometimes that's how life works out. But what is important is that David knows his faith, his trust, his strength comes from God. He knows that when something goes wrong, he'll own it. Right? He knows that his job, because he is so blessed, is to bless those around us, bless those around him. You see, in the gospel, we are to learn to be David. You see, Jesus, like David, but the greater David, the king of kings, the perfect version of a king, he, without having done any wrong, was betrayed for us. He was betrayed and crucified and penalized and dies for us. He trades his life for ours out of obedience He gives his life a sacrifice for ours. Out of faithfulness and obedience to God, Jesus gives his life. And he teaches us that it's us surrendering ourselves, not fighting our own battles, but us surrendering ourselves that is our truest and greatest strength in Christ. That as he dies for us, he also resurrects from the grave because that was God's plan. Because God's battle and God's way to fight the battle is greater than the way we would fight the battle. You see, in Christ, there's not just death and forgiveness, but there's resurrection and new life. But in Christ, for us to be fully in Christ, to live the way that Jesus has created us, to live in the gospel, we need to learn to stop fighting our fights. In fact, more importantly, to stop having fights, to stop making things about us. 
but rather to take each thing to God and be willing to lay down and walk away when he calls us to, or we're willing to rise up and let him give us victory. But instead of thinking about us, the call is, God, what would you have us do? In Christ, we are to learn how to lay down ourselves and live for him. Romans says it this way in Romans 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul says to the church in Rome, listen, here's how you know you're in Christ because you're following him. Because you're laying down your life, your personal needs, your wants, your I want to be indoors, I don't want to wear a mask, I, I want a vaccine, I want it to all go away, I want our politics to go away, I want this, I want that. All are our, the I conversation, what I want, it goes away and we begin to say this, what does God want? What is Jesus teaching us to do? How do we lay down ourselves for that? And as God blesses us in that, how do we then give it away? How do we take that blessing that God has given us and give it away to others? It's countercultural. It's different than we live here in America and the church, but it's what we need to learn. It's who we need to become that Christ can live in and through us maybe we become the solution for a broken nation. Generations Church, my heart is that we will learn the lessons, the lessons of David, yes, but more importantly, the lesson of Christ, and that we will learn to live lives about something greater, about Christ himself.